in the writings of Ksav Kabbalah, as we have been uh, enlightened and, uh, in my case at least, enthused by his teachings so far since uh, Bereshit. The Ksavah Kabbalah was Rabbi Yaakov Tzvi Mecklenburg, just to repeat for those who may be joining us uh, uh, for the first time or those who are viewing the, the video. Rabbi Yaakov Tzvi Mecklenburg died in 1865. He was the rabbi in Konigsberg. And the reason all of this uh, brief biographical info is relevant is that it contextualizes his life and his uh, milieu in which he lived in Germany in the time, in the, the sort of dramatic decades of the transformation of German Jewry, transformation, I would say, not for the better, uh, the rise of reform, which uh, very quickly uh, transformed the uh, character of the German Jewish community. And he was one of the first and one of the most uh, eloquent uh, defenders of tradition. Uh, and his book, Sava Kabbalah, which means the text and the tradition, endeavors to show the unity of the written Torah and the oral tradition in order to help establish the validity of the rabbinic tradition upon which Judaism itself has been uh, built, the foundation upon which Judaism exists for the last 2000 years uh, uh, and more. So a little bit of uh, contextualization. The examples that we're going to look at tonight, I think are characteristic of his approach. So let's begin, not at the very beginning, uh, as we shall see. So our parsha is Bishalach and uh, the portion of Bishalach begins with the words, Vehi Bishalach Paro es Ha'am, when Paro sent the people, the nation out. And the Torah describes how uh, Hashem led them by a circuitous route. Uh, in the beginning of chapter 14, uh, the Jewish uh, nation is almost, um, or is evidently uh, lost, uh, they've lost their path. They are wandering, and this prompts the Egyptians, Pharaoh in particular, to believe that he can recapture the Jewish people. He immediately has a buyer's remorse, or if you like, seller's remorse in a way, because he sent the Jewish people, the slaves, away. Now he wants them back. So that's the, um, the background. If you take a look at Pasuk Ches, if you've got the art school, page 368, it's chapter 14, verse 9, verse 8. Hashem hardened the heart, which we explained last week, has a particular meaning according to uh, Sava Kabbalah, but that's not pertinent for this moment. And he pursued the uh, Jewish people. So those are the words, famous words that I'd like to elucidate according to Sava Kabbalah. The meaning is the children of Israel were going out with a hand held high. Art score renders it with an upraised arm, Biyad Rama. If you look at the uh, translation of Unculus, which perhaps you may or may not be accustomed to doing the Aramaic translation, Vneso Nefaku Beresh Gali. They went out with uh, like. Uh, uh, literally, Reish Gali means with an exposed head. In other words, they were not cowering. They did not wear uh, uh, hoods or, dare I say, masks. They were confident. And this is the kind of the, the implication of Yad Rama. Just as an aside, uh, the great Ashkenazic halachic authority 
was, of course, Rav Moshe Iserlis, uh, who wrote glosses, authoritative glosses on the Shulchan Aruch. He was known as Rabbi as Rama, Reish Mem Aleph was his acronym. And uh, Ashkenazim said, that we follow, we follow behind the teachings of the Ramah. But the Sephardim were not to be outdone. And uh, because the Shulchan Aruch was written by Rav Yosef Karo, and his great work preceding the Shulchan Aruch was called the Beit Yosef, the House of Joseph. So he, uh, so they would say, Luchu el Yosef, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. That's what uh, Paro had said to his uh, uh, subjects in the days of Yosef. So anyway, we have a remez just again by the by. But this expression, Biyad Ramah, is quite well known. It kind of, uh, uh, in a pithy phrase, describes how the Jewish people, when they left, they did not leave as escaping slaves or even as freed convicts who are just relieved to uh, be uh, freed from their confinement, but rather <clears throat> they went with confidence and they kind of uh, paraded, they, they marched out of Egypt in that way. Okay, Ksava Kabbalah, however, has a different view of the matter, as I tell you sometimes. He says... <clears throat> That he quotes the Mechilte. Mechilte is a, an important uh, Midrashic source. And the Mechilte says that the Jewish people, when they left, the Egyptians were pursuing them. They were cursing, they were blaspheming, they were uh, like uh, 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 insolent vis-a-vis -vis the Jewish people and vis-a-vis -vis the God of Israel. In other words, they can completely regress to their earlier position of a total rejectionism. But the Jewish people, they were praising God. They were uh, uh, expressing song and glad appreciation. And the Medrash quotes the words in the Hussein, the praise of God, the highest praise of God was in their throat. The question is, okay, we have a very, uh, I think, um, uh, a sharp image contrasting the Jewish people who are grateful for the divine delivery, the Egyptians who are cursing the Jewish people and even the God of Israel. But where does it come from? Where is this hinted to in the text? So again, Ksavit Kabbalah, his whole orientation is to show how a close reading of the text of the Torah uh, reveals the basis for the rabbinic tradition. So he says the word biyad with a hand is related to the word bitoda. Yad, it's like the word toda, which means thanks or gratitude or appreciation, has its root in the word yad. He says that the word yad, biyad rama, it means that the Jewish people went out with thanks, with gratitude. Rama meaning upheld or high, like Ram, the harim is to lift up. So he says, Ksavet uh, Kabbalah, he translates into German quite a lot. He says, mitharem dank, like with, uh, with highest thanks. So, Biyad Rama, the Jewish people left 
full, their hearts full of gratitude, full of song and praise and appreciation for the God of Israel. So he says what Unculus tells us, which is the way it's usually understood, just to say that the Jewish people left proudly and openly. They didn't skulk out in the night as an escaping convict or a thief, uh, but rather they went with confidence, Baresh Gali. But according to that, he says, why do we need the next words? In the eyes within the sight of all of Egypt. Because it just says the same thing again. If they went out beyond Ramah, which means openly, then it implies it was within the sight of all of Egypt. The Egyptians saw them leave and were galled by it. I'm sure that's true. But the Torah doesn't have to say beyond Ramah. It's just like another way of saying the same idea, which is true. We do find that sometimes. But here it's like by saying they went out openly, the implication already is it was within the sight of the Egyptians. But to say that Beyad Ramah means they went out with gratitude, with most high thanks to Hashem. Now, it's interesting, he often cross-references his own uh, commentary to other places where he elaborates further on the thing. He doesn't mention it here, but those who are with us in Parsha's Lech Lecha hopefully will recall that actually he says something uh, compatible with this, similar to it in the case of Avraham Avinu after he uh, triumphed over the five kings who had uh, despoiled Sodom and other um, areas. They had captured Lot and other uh, townsfolk of Sodom. Avraham brought back the captives. He released them and he was greeted by the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom said, Give me the people, that is to say the souls, these are my subjects, but the booty you can keep to the victor go the spoils. Avraham replied, I raise up my hand to the most high God. And Rashi says that's an expression of a vow. I won't take anything from you. I don't want it to be said that you, the king of Sodom, have enriched Avraham. Okay, we spoke about that at some uh, from different points of view in the past as well. But for those who are with us a couple of months ago, we said that Xava Kabbalah says, Harimosius Yadi Hashir Romumus Hashir Bahasheva, the exaltation of praise and gratitude. So Harimosius, I lift up my hand like a person who's exalting, who's who's expressing his appreciation and he's so grateful to Hashem. He he uh, reaches out his hands. I don't want to completely obscure my screen, but anyway, you get the idea. So uh, Ksava Kabbalah says essentially the same idea here as well. Biyad Rama, the word Rama means Romamus with exaltation, with highest and most uh, uh, exalted. Thanks and appreciation to Hashem. Now we have the contrast. The Egyptians are denying God. The Jewish people have maybe discovered, let's say, or rediscovered their relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Okay, this is Biyad Ramah. Let's go forward now uh, to chapter 14, further in the same parak, Pasuk Chaf Beis, verse 22. So, here we have the description 
of the splitting of the sea, uh, prior to this, the Jewish people, as I said at the beginning, they appeared to be blundering around in the wilderness. This was all part of the divine plan, of course, that prompted the Egyptians to believe they could recapture them. And the Jewish people themselves were uh, actually very rattled by it. In fact, they said to Moshe, what have you done to us? What have, where, why have you brought us here? Uh, is it for want of graves in Egypt? You brought us to die in the wilderness. Of course, as is very well known, the waters split and the Jewish people are able to cross on dry land. Now, if you take a look at verse 22, we have the description of how they entered the sea or the seabed. The children of Israel came within the sea on dry land. And the water was a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Jewish people entered into the midst of the sea. The expression that the Torah uses, the verb that we find in the um, scriptures generally, even in rabbinic uh, literature as well, for, let's say, setting out on a sea journey, we usually use the term leiraid, to go down to the sea. Like it says uh, in the Pasuk, uh, Yorde Hayam Ba'anios, those who descend to the sea in, on ships or boats. And there's a reason for that, because, of course, the dry land is always above sea level, unless you go to the Dead Sea or certain other very limited places. Most of the time, whatever land you are, even London, it's very close to sea level, but we're still above sea level. If you're below sea level, then the waters of the sea can come crashing in upon you. Of course, some places are exceptional. Like we said, the Dead Sea, the Jordan Valley Rift, uh, that sort of thing. But generally speaking, the sea is below, the land is above. This is a geological or geographical um, uh, fact. And therefore, we find generally the expression, Yorde Hayam. Says Xavier Kabbalah, why here does it say, Hayam? Sorry, just finding my place. Hayam into the midst of the sea. And especially here, where according to the way it's normally understood, they did not just descend like into the sea they did initially the first few meters but of course when the sea split then they descended onto the seabed so it should definitely say vayardu that that they descended so he comes up with a suggestion it's actually quotes in one of the name of the the other earlier commentaries and he says that what happened was, it's not that the Jewish people went down onto the seabed. Because if you think about it, and he quotes this from the Vilna Gaon later on as well, that the, the seabed actually would be very, very uh, difficult to walk upon. Because the seabed is not just a flat surface like a paved highway or the Utah salt flats where they like to do... Uh, um, speed uh, records or set speed records for land vehicles is not flat and straight. Of course not. So it would be quite difficult and, and not at all uh, pleasant actually to walk along the seabed. And if you think about it for a moment, not that I'd done so previously, of course he's right. Therefore he says the following, very interesting idea. And this gives the, uh, the name to our share for tonight, 
high and dry. He says that it's not the way we normally think that the waters of the sea split and the Jewish people were able to walk on the seabed. Rather, the seabed rose little by little. The seabed rose. And then the waters, of course, receded to the right and to the left, naturally and inevitably by the force of gravity. So the Jewish people, therefore, are able to, they didn't have to descend into the sea because miraculously they stood on the seashore and the seabed rose so that they could walk straight across. Of course, the water <clears throat> naturally receded then to the right and to the left, but he acknowledges that there was another miracle, as the Torah says explicitly, we just read the Pasuk, and the water for them was like a wall to the right and to the left. So uh, he observes that this idea of the water being a wall is also hinted to really in the language of the Torah itself. If you look just a few verses later in the Song of the Sea, it's actually in the next chapter, there we have the words nitzvu, um, you can find it in Pasuk Ches. If you want to look at chapter 15, verse 8, Pasuk Ches. Uh, I'm just reading from the middle of that verse. Nitzvu chomoneid nozlim. That straight up as a wall stood the running water. Uh, nozlim is running, like running water, a liquid. Nitzvu, but they stood upright kineid, like a, a uh, straight as a wall. And the word, the Torah continues, kafu somos belev yam. The depths in the heart of the sea were congealed. Now, the word kafu like, um, also means frozen, literally frozen, but congealed. Anything which is liquid and becomes a solid, like water that freezes or other things that freeze, so that the word is kafu. But uh, the word also kafu, he shows how the word kafu also means to ascend or to float above. So he says that the water that... Uh, receded to the right and to the left, rather than just, you know, running the way water normally does, when the seabed rose, so it pushed the water into like a, a, a heap, and it, it stood as a wall. So this explanation uh, does not uh, provide a naturalistic explanation per se, but I think that it's faithful to the text, a close reading of the text, and it does help us understand how the Torah could describe, and certainly in the Medrash, we have so much description of how the Jewish people walked through on dry land, and it was so easy, so pleasant, and the road was, was like a straight highway for them. The seabed is not flat at all. In fact, uh, just as an example, I'm not saying that the Red Sea or the Reed Sea is the same as the Pacific Ocean, but uh, Ruthie and I years ago had occasion on a certain special uh, trip uh, to visit Hawaii. And we stayed on what's known as the Big Island. And the Big Island of Hawaii, actually all the Hawaiian islands are formed by volcanic eruptions uh, in early antiquity. And the, uh, the crater, the, the volcano known as Mauna Kea is actually the tallest mountain in the world. It's actually a thousand meters, more than a thousand meters, more than a kilometer taller than Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the highest above sea level, as is very well known. However, the Mauna Kea is the tallest mountain from the bed of the sea. I'm just mentioning that, just as I say, by way of illustration, that uh, uh, you know, the 
the seabed per se is not not necessarily going to be such a uh, you know um, straight or or easy easy path and i think that alone is enough to commend this uh, this interpretation it's interesting that he finds uh, he quotes the grandson of the vilna gaon who says it's quite similar idea in the name of the vilna gaon in his commentary on the book of uh, of yeshaya uh, and he also adds that lev yam, belev yam in the heart of the sea. So we often think of the heart as something which is like uh, deep within, but actually the expression belev yam refers to the ship. We find that expression for ships that traverse the sea. Of course, ships are on the surface of the sea or near the surface of the sea. So he says belev yam really means on the surface of the sea, in which case, again, according to, to this interpretation, we can understand how the water on either side stood up as a, as a uh, wall because it was, so to speak, positioned above the sea level. So the Jewish people walked at sea level because the uh, seabed rose and the walls on either side, were the, the water on either side was, was like a wall. Okay, let's go a bit further and take a look at a uh, comment which is pertinent, as we shall see, to the Jewish calendar uh, right now. Take a look, please, at verse 17, chapter 15, verse 17. This is towards the end of the Song of the Sea, which, of course, we sing or we recite on Shabbos morning and indeed every morning in Pesuke de Zimra. And, of course, this Shabbos, we will read it. And it is sometimes chanted in a very special, uh, very beautiful, lilting melody, something that is... Uh, unique to this song of the sea. Anyway, that's just by the by. So, Pasad Yud Zayin 17, Tivi Emo Vasita Emo Baharna Chalasacha. Tivi Emo, you will bring them, Vasita Emo, and you will implant them. So, Tivi Emo means that the Jewish people are praising God, anticipating that Hashem will bring the Jewish people to their land and even to the, there's a reference there to the sanctuary, probably it means to the base of Mikdash that will be built in the future in, in Yerushalayim. But what is the meaning of that word visita emo, to implant them? What's the significance of planting? Why not say to establish them or just to bring them? That's the main point. If you bring them, they will be able to establish themselves and the society and to live uh, hopefully in, in autonomy and in, and in peace. Uh, what's the meaning of vetit sita emo? So he explains the word to plant, niti uh, uh, is to plant, like to plant a sapling or to plant a tree. It has a connotation of permanence or something which is enduring, kavua and chazaka and strength. And he says that a tree is a symbol of something which has roots below and it is fruitful above. In fact, the, root, uh, the roots of a tree typically extend about twice the, the uh, area of the, the canopy of the tree. So if the canopy of the tree is let's say 10 meters or more, the roots are going to extend approximately twice that. So to plant the Jewish people has the connotation of something which is firm, something which is enduring. Like the Apostle says in Yeshaya, 
to let God, so to speak, plants the heavens, even though it's uh, kind of an inversion of the, the imagery there, and to establish the earth. Uh, and he observes that this expression, this reference to the natua, that which is implanted, is found in the uh, liturgy as well, in a very important place. I hope that this morning uh, everyone here said Brichas HaTorah. By the way, it's a mitzvah min HaTorah for men and for women, according to most authorities. So if you haven't said it, uh, uh, you should. In fact, uh, some rabbis, when they give a shiur, they recite the Torah, the blessings of the Torah with the with the participants in case anybody has forgotten to say, anyway, I don't go that, down that path, but let me remind you, Birchas the blessings of the Torah. We say the words, uh, that God, we praise God for giving us the Torah, and we say the eternal life he has implanted within us, nata He says that the Torah, of course, is likened to a tree of life, it's Chaim He, but it implants within man in a very, for me, very beautiful imagery, the eternal life. There is eternal life within man and within woman who says the Birchas HaTorah because the Torah gives us that eternal life. He says, this world, living in this world, that is to say the physical life, is limited. How long does a person live? 120 years, sometimes uh, sooner than that. He passes from this, from this existence. And also a person's life in this world is not strong necessarily and kavua. It does not necessarily endure. It does not necessarily, in fact, it, it can never uh, give a person the sense of permanence in his life in this world. He says, Ba'olam in this world, tiluyim lanu mineged tamid. Our lives are suspended, suspended before us always. That is to say, uh, just as um, something which is suspended in air, uh, it can easily be pushed, can easily be, be disturbed. And who knows how long that suspension can last. That's what our life is like in this world, in the physical existence. But through the Torah, a person is granted the possibility, or even I would say the certainty, if he uh, lives a life of Torah, of a life in the next world, which is enduring. This is to the aim of a sita emo, the idea of planting. And I think that this is a remez to Tu Bishvat as well. As you know, on Monday, Sunday night, Monday, we mark Tu Bishvat, the 15th of Shvat. I'm sure you know it's regarded as the new year for trees. It's mentioned in the Mishnah that way as well. And, you know, a tree, especially a fruit-bearing tree, is a symbol of something which endures, something which is lasting. Obviously, trees can be chopped down, etc. But a tree has the potential to live for a long, long time. In fact, I did a little bit of research uh, and uh, there is a tree in Crete that is the subject of a lot of uh, interest of tourists. They've got 20,000 tourists who visit it every year. That tree is at least 2,000 years old. It's an olive tree and it's still bearing fruit, still bears fruit every uh, season. Uh, the locals claim with some evidence, the local university says it's actually uh, three to 4,000 years old. But the Israelis are not to be uh, outdone, 
And uh, there is a tree, I don't know if you want to say it's Israeli tree or an Arab tree, but anyway, it's in Bethlehem, Bethlehem. And uh, that tree is reputed to be 4,000 years old. It's a certain tree, a well-known tree. You can visit it. Uh, I don't know about the politics of it, uh, but there's an olive tree, which again, produces fruit year by year. So 4,000 years, it may not be uh, forever, but uh, the 2,000 year old man was uh, you know, quite a popular fantasy at one time. So we see that a tree is a symbol of longevity, a symbol of productivity as well, a symbol of the capacity to be fruitful for a long time. And that's v'chaye olam nata besocheinu, the eternal life Hashem has implanted within us. So those are the ideas that I, I wanted to share with you tonight. There's a lot more a fascinating eventful Parsha, but we need to uh, achieve our objective within the time allocated. So just a brief review as we like to sum up. So we spoke about they went out with a hand held high, which according to our interpretation, is like with highest thanks. They went out with gratitude, with a, a spirit of exaltation. Not just they went out with confidence, that too, but they were praising God when the Egyptians were cursing the Jewish people and even cursing God himself. Then we said, they went into the midst of the sea. It doesn't say, they descended into the sea, which because they're going on the seabed, we would have thought it would say, and this gives rise, if you excuse the pun, to the suggestion that actually the seabed rose up little by little, and the water naturally receded to the right and to the left, but in a miraculous way, the water actually, instead of running off to the right and left, but it it was elevated as well, and it was frozen in space, congealed as the walls, as the Torah, the Torah describes. And we mentioned, again, if you want to just uh, say it over about, you can look it up yourself, the Mauna Kea, which is more than 10,000 meters high from the seabed, more than 10 kilometers high, quite remarkable to consider. And thankfully, the Jewish people, even the Sea of the Red Sea, according to this, they didn't have to uh, deal with any of that. It was a straight path. And then lastly, just now we said, Tiviemu, bring him and implant him. The symbolism of something planted is that its roots are deep and secure, and it produces fruit year by year. And we said, furthermore, that the tree is a symbol of longevity, a symbol of something which endures. And these trees, which are 4,000 years old, some are even saying older, so 5,000 years old, quite a remarkable uh, phenomenon, and I think a compelling and a hopeful symbol for the Chaye Olam Natab Besochenu. The Torah gives us eternal life in the world to come. Thank you for listening. I wish everybody Shabbat Shalom, and in case we don't see you before Tu Bishvat, have a happy Tu Bishvat. But please come to Kesher because you've got great things in store for Kesher this Shabbos as well, and we look forward to seeing you. Shabbat. Thank you, Rabbi Very interesting share. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Love the summing up. That's it. You can just come for the last three minutes. You don't need yeah. the rest of the year. <laughs> I must apologize because uh, during the shiur, I had uh, just uh, to face uh, something terrible. Uh, for 10 years, I have been in the editor and the editor of a scholarly journal mm -hmm. at the Goldsmith uh, College and uh, as a volunteer. Now there is uh, somebody who is manager 
at IT services, but on the side he's art. And he has decided that now they acquire this key in order to access that. Something that is not something that requires me being employed there. Mm -hmm. And I was employed there in the mid uh, uh, 2000s. I wasn't employed later uh, in any British university because you know that there was a boycott. Mm -hmm. I have 600 publications, which is oh. what is enough for one department. And yet I haven't been in a job since then. The fact is now he says, uh, as he didn't reply, he just said, you shouldn't be there. I said, there is this journal. There are people in all stages of career. I can't think of somebody young in, in New York who has contributed two papers for his career. If the journal disappears, it is uh, terrible for his career. I said, uh, again, uh, as he wrote it to the warden, that is the vice chancellor, uh, I said it is a matter for the vice chancellor to decide, not for somebody at, info, at uh, 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 a technician at uh, information services. Uh, I am not very optimistic because in my experience, the very top managers of universities are uh, anything goes here in Britain. <laughs> and I really don't know how to come out of that because yeah. uh, it is something for which I have responsibility to a lot of scholars. It's not only my work, it is my work. I never had one thank you for the university for attracting such visibility for them. And uh, just, of course, you cannot understand things that are scholarly. But what really hurts me is that in 2005, um, there is somebody crypto-Jewish who manages them, and he wanted to hire me. And the one who had most papers there apparently was nervous about somebody who had more papers and was known to be Jewish. <laughs> and it is not a total secret that the chair is. And he shouted at the interview. Really? I think then that one didn't want to hear anything about that. And they don't have anything that approaches my credentials. Terrible. And now, apparently, he invokes him as an ally on this matter. I say, but you are referring to something from 2005. We are in the year 2022. And a lot of things have happened, such as this journal, which is it is in, in the university, it's not only me. What, what kind of journal is it? What, uh, uh, what sector? What it is interdisciplinary. For example, there is much about, for example, there are two Froome professors in America who are a couple and have written about humor in the Babylonian Talmud. I see. <laughs> And think like that. Uh, it is interdisciplinary about uh, this kind of reasoning. Wow. It is in cultural studies. Is it related to the, all the problems at Goldsmith College with antisemitism? Oh, that is what the students do. What I think the problem with the Jewish community, us, parents have only experience of their children going to university. 
they don't realize the total scandal of what is happening to, uh, to staff. I was one of two Jewish people at, at uh, um, Greenwich University. The other one in the department of 200 uh, people committed suicide and non-Jewish staff said that he was pushed. And then they united two departments and that same manager found another Jew on his hands. Wow. So sorry. Terrible. So can you get any organizations involved like the Simon Wiesenthal Center or is there like an anti The fact is that uh, the Board of Deputies uh, had attempted with a retired judge in 2002, uh, 2003, to do whether they should take interest. But apparently the person was uh, handling that was only after his career. Also now on something different, he works for the European Union. But that what is not expecting to solve the problem. I think that nobody can expect to do that. And somebody, a professor in Israel told me, of course, what do you, did you expect? So that it hasn't been in the hands of anybody. I think that only with the core being dangerous, they took things in their hands because it is a real danger. So that things have been evolving, but not for universities. I think that the politicians, Gordon Brown, when they asked him when he was prime minister about anti-Semitism, he said, yes, the universities. But of mm -hmm. course, you wouldn't do anything about that because there are big corporations and he didn't want to lose his premiership by fighting them. It's very difficult, unfortunately. I hear in the United States with the people, even at Harvard or smaller universities, it is terrible for Jews. Unfortunately, uh, it is. For example, I know one who had to resign from Harvard. And he just told me about all the anti-Semitism that he faced there. Terrible. And you are a senior professor. Really? Terrible. Look, yes. uh, Fram, I hope it uh, takes a turn for the better and that you are able to, uh, as you said, maybe the vice chancellor will will take uh, a more sympathetic or, or a less hostile view. Uh, but, but Rabbi, I think we have an obligation to go to papers to, I think the Simon Wiesenthal Center, maybe AB, you know, they have a, they have an office in France, but maybe, maybe the one in Los Angeles, maybe they're... They have an office in London about as well. About 10 days ago, an old professor in Australia uh, asked me, she's one of the top people in the field and a very kind person, asked me to prepare a presentation about the journal for her uh, association of scholars. Perhaps she can't suggest something. I don't know whether she can, but uh, just uh, it's, I am not against moving the journal out of Goldsmith because they really don't deserve to have all the benefit that they got from a journal. But I have to find another place.
Sure. That's, um, I, I'm surprised. Well, maybe I shouldn't say I'm surprised, but uh, uh, I would have thought that the Board of Deputies would uh, be prepared to take an interest in this kind of, of uh, scenario. Uh, the Jewish Leadership Council, uh, there's also a campaign against anti-Semitism. Oh, yeah, why don't you put him in touch privately with, with, um, with Joseph Cohen? Yes, but the fact is that there was somebody who was a, a senior barrister who boasted with other deputies that he would take my case and then at the law center, in those years, it was still permitted to, for law centers to, to take employment cases. She was somebody with a Nigerian background. She put the uh, uh, one year of work almost free of charge to prepare the, even Christmas night, she was sitting at that center writing the statement. She spent days trying to contact that Jewish barrister, and then her office told her that she is too busy. He was just boasting. Yeah, I see, I see. So another one okay. was a, a doctor student in geology told the board of deputies that he was willing to uh, contribute 100 pounds to <laughs> my uh, case, and they told me, uh, write him a letter of thank you. I sent a letter of thank you, and he never kept his word. So I think that it was never like the danger from Corbyn. Only with Corbyn, they understood what we are up yeah. to. Yeah, no, I think you're right that it's it doesn't um, doesn't bring with it the same urgency or the same the same consequences. But it is very insidious. And the situation in academia has implications for the rest of the society. Yeah, Ephraim, I've got to go yeah, because okay. I need to pre prepare hey, for my... Thank you very much. And, as well. uh, anyway, nice to see you. And I hope we hear good news. Uh, thank you very much. Give us an update. Thank you. Bye -bye. Okay. okay, thank you. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.